We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Daniel Moore, and you're listening to a Hearing Architecture mini-episode. In this mini-episode, you're going to be hearing from Stephen Geeson. Stephen is the director of the Hobart-based firm Cycle Architecture. With a diverse portfolio of work, Stephen has started to specialise in aged care living for people with dementia. He was sought out for his specialist knowledge by the large practice Thompson Adset to be the fireside architect, or their man on the ground, for their Tasmanian projects that needed to achieve a high level of performance for people living with dementia. Here's Stephen speaking with me about his experience on aged care living projects with a lens focused on designing for dementia. All right, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the Hearing Architecture podcast. So uh, you've got some really interesting and specific experience in architecture, specifically in aged care. So do you want to tell us about a couple of the projects that, that you've been involved with where you've been able to explore these design concepts for, for people with dementia? Uh, yeah, thanks, Daniel, and thanks for, for reaching out. As I said earlier, it's, it's really quite an honour to be a part of the podcast. So two projects come to mind to, to talk about, and, and they're, they're polar opposite when it comes to scale. So... One was the Lachlan Wing at Currambeen Nursing Home, which is based in the Derwent Valley in New Norfolk, which is about a 30-minute drive from Hobart. Now, small care facility, very unique in its original design. So Robert Morris Nunn was the original architect back in, I think it was probably 95, 96. Now, he designed it around the, the familiarity of the Picker's Hut. You know, it was known for its, the area is known for its hops. It's known for its raspberries and its fruit picking. So the corridors of this current, or the, the original facility that was built was was lined with pickers' huts. So he, he was playing this, or he understood this game around what was familiar, and that was familiar to those residents. You know, there's corrugated iron tanks, high water cylinders. There's pickers' huts with weatherboards. You know, they it, it was a fabulous, world breaking kind of process that they went through back in the 90s. Now. The Lachlan Wing was an add-on that didn't take on that concept and it was a secure dementia facility with 13 residents living in it that had significant behavioural issues when it came to it. So what I liked about this was it was an intervention within a current built environment and how we could then sort of work with an incredibly tight budget, a really robust and, and engaged client who was really striving to achieve the best result for his residents within it and how you then worked within a fixed footprint and a fixed fabric that dictated some really difficult design challenges, create something that was homely, active, created a space where residents could actually get natural light, go outside easily, sit in the sun, have a private space that they could they could retreat to, as well as, you know, removing a significantly large nursing station, which, you know, was the old fishbowl where they just sat in there and looked out at the residents. So, you know, that was a fantastic intervention which we worked on. Well, I mean, that must be a really difficult thing to balance um, because the people who are in are in the assisted living need to be monitored and, and kept tabs on, but then the people who live there also need to be uh, able to 
you know, feel freedom and, and feel the, the ability to get out and about and to still live their lives, even though they're, they might be under surveillance in a way. How did you tackle that kind of balance there? How did you tackle that? Yeah, so the passive surveillance is really important. And, you know, the nurses station, you know, is, is a good space for nurses to sit in, do their paperwork and isolate and view, but it's not the most friendly or residential environment to create. So, you know, we, we created within the Currambeen project a nurses station which had some you know a lovely curved timber batten screen that wrapped around it it had some really nice subtle lighting we then also located a computer on it for the residents to use so it became the internet space you know it was where where people could come in and you know they could use their computer under with assistance or by themselves yet it was also the space that the nurse would make some notes and and do their paperwork and and sit within the community as well so simple installations of that component allow for the passive surveillance, it allows for interaction, it also allows the technology to come and enter in and the technology plays a, a significant role in passive surveillance as well, whether it be sensory floors or motion sensors, those sorts of things are really quite important in reducing the notion of the institution and creating the sense of home and a home-like environment. Yeah. So my grandmother was also in assisted living when she had Alzheimer's and she was in a aged care facility, people with Alzheimer's in Tasmania. And she had one of these uh, spots where there was a bus stop, but the, the bus never came. But uh, a bunch of times she did uh, <laughs> sort of escape the, the people who were taking care of her, but they did find her at the, at the bus stop. Are these the sorts of interventions that uh, seem to work quite well that help people feel like they can just have a bit of a, a break and they can take that ownership and, you know, really make it feel like home for them? Absolutely. And, look, the bus stop's a great one that you hear numerous times and, and it's, you know, it's almost a, a cultural experience across across the world, you know, internationally where, you, you know, it, it stops people. They're, they're off to catch the bus and, you know, as you say, the bus never comes, but there's a, there's a social interaction because what, what we've seen happen there is people come and sit next to them and they have a conversation. Yeah, you know, which is a really lovely mm. thing for that person. Whether, it, you know, I could tell you a few great stories about um, one old fellow that was in the Lachlan Wing about wanting to go to the TAB, and he had a hot tip, yeah, right? But um, he couldn't get there. <laughs> yeah, but you know, what was amazing there is, you know, he knew the hot tip from, and it was he was dated back to thinking back into 1981, kind of thing. So, you know, th- those sorts of things allow for the the social interaction to occur. But yeah, it, it's really important, I think, that you create a built environment that that creates the ability for that resident to, you know, live a meaningful and engaged life. And if that means that they want to go outside, you know, you make that easy for them. If you, you know, it, it's a risk-based thing that needs to be catered for around the care supply and the operational model that sits over the top as well. So all of that needs to be considered when it comes to it. But, yeah, it's critical. And, again, you know, there's research coming out of uh, Norway around the importance of the landscape and and the ability for the resident to have level and safe access to that as well. Mm, yeah, I, I saw some uh, some projects in Scandinavia recently where it looked like the, a whole uh, mini village was built with a small supermarket and, and all of these different social areas. So you know things that looked like bars and pubs and, and all that sort of thing. So that then the residents could be taken around what felt like a, a city to them or a town to them, but it was actually all within the one aged care facility. Is that where we're heading in Australia, something like that? Yeah, look, it is. And and what you're referring to there is De Hogway, which is in Wisp 
in the Netherlands, which is about a 15-minute tram ride out of Amsterdam. So I visited that village in 2015 and, and managed to connect with their founder and their CEO for a good day. And, yeah, look, that leads us into the next project, which we could talk about, which is Karonji, the village for people living with dementia, which has just been completed in Glenorchy, Tasmania, which is why I referenced that earlier. That is effectively an adaption of a village into a Tasmanian suburban environment, if that makes sense. So it's it's a inward-looking village which has the small house model and it also has community facilities within it. So it has a pantry or a grocer which has the capacity to be a farmer's market on weekends. You know, it opens up to a, a beautifully landscaped space. It has a great community hall and facility which is a multi-purpose around three scales and that allows for a large-scale movie theatre kind of aspect. It also then has a smaller intimate room for whatever community interaction or engagement or club that might want that space. And then there's another, you know, multi-religious altar for, you know, obviously the funerals and and the ceremonies that need to occur. And, you know, it it also then has a a wellness centre. So it's got a hair salon, it's got podiatry, it's got a cafe, it's got a gym, uh, it's got wellness therapy rooms. And then all around that is the back of house of, uh, you know, deliveries come in the back. You know, the, the notion of aged care facility is being pushed to the perimeter. So the resident is in a safe, level, secure environment, allowing them to, again, you know, we, you know live their chosen way of life, really. Well, it, it must be very interesting now that in Australia our... Uh, the demographics are, are shifting, so we've got a, a growing ageing population. This probably means that in the future there's going to be a pretty massive financial impact as we change our cities to accommodate or more people who are older. Is that what we're starting to see roll out in Australia? Yeah, look, the, the trend's an interesting one and, and I've been reading a few um, different theses around that and, you know, what, what the future actually looks like for aged care. And there's, there's lots of different models. Um, and, and yes, it's how you integrate the aged care and the senior living into the built environment and integrate it into the community. And I think I read the other day that, you know, this is the year that the baby boomers start to turn 75. So the expectation of senior living is going to change significantly because they don't want an institution. You know, that they're looking for something very different to, to what the marketplace has previously presented, I suppose, or the built environment has presented. So, you know, it works around that. Well, there's, there's, you know, the ability to have home care, as we sort of talked about earlier, you know, and then there's the need that, you know, the independent living unit, apartment, whatever that might look like, depending on the space or the urban environment that we live in will dictate what that is, um, having a higher level of care that's, op- that's offered. Um, and, you know, again, you're building that in to the fabric so as the person ages they age in place you know now half of the challenge of course is that a lot of the building stock that we currently have isn't designed for people aging in place you know it does require significant alterations to make it a successful application so we need to sort of future focus on on how we design around those sorts of spaces i think yeah some people might be up there thinking you know we've We've probably always had people who've, as they've been getting older, started to develop Alzheimer's or some form of dementia. Now that we're changing the way that we're thinking about these spaces, 
does the work need to be done that way? I mean, does the research show that people are either getting better or feeling better? I mean, is that is that starting to actually happen? Look, it's it's about coming back to that evidence-based solution. And I think Karanji will be a really interesting village because um, the Wicking Centre, which is the Dementia and Research Education Facility with the University of Tasmania, who have been involved in the whole process, and uh, Dr James Vickers, who is the director of the Wicking, is on the board and has been a part of the process from inception to completion. And what they'll be doing is effectively the post-occupation evaluation in a whole lot of different ways to determine how some of these design decisions that have been put in place, whether it be the bricks and mortar or the care model, impacts the resident, the family, the carer, and, you know, because... We need to look at it as a really big picture, and that is, yes, the resident's the most critical person, but so is the carer, and so is the family, and so is the community that sits around it, and how all of that moulds together is is really important to understand. And that's where Karonji will be really interesting to look at, yeah, what works and what doesn't, and what we take forward with us and, and how we develop other ideas around it. That's right. Well, that's, that's the thing, isn't it? It's it's so specific to what the person is going through who's living there and everyone is so unique. So, yeah, it's it's one of those things where when you actually start to communicate with the people who are taking care of them and ability for the family to come in and, and help as well, I mean, it's, it's just, a, yeah, it's much bigger than, than purely, you know, providing someone with a nice room, isn't it? It's uh, very people-based. <laughs> Absolutely, that's right. It is people-based and it's very much individual-based and, and that becomes a real challenge within itself. So, again, you know, we'll talk about um, back to Karonji and, and, you know, the model in the Netherlands as well. They also kind of try to match people within the small house model. So De Hogway has six residents per house, which is the co-housing model, and then, you know, behind that they have shared living, dining, kitchen space. Karonji has eight per house and Glenview has the 12 houses in there. But they also engaged with the university to determine personality types. And then, you know, they, they do kind of a, a an interview to determine who that person is and what, the, you know, what lifestyle they've been living and how they've been living in. And then they, they try to match that personality in the same house. So they're trying to kind of reduce personality conflict to start off with which I think will be really interesting to see how that works as well. And then, you know, you furnish the house to accommodate the personality type. So the soft furnishings and the mouldings that are around that allow you to do that. Um, and they can also personalise it as well. So that kind of addresses one of the personality issues. But you're right in the aspect of they're individuals and trying to create a home for eight people comes quite challenging because they all have their own particular way of life that they've been living. So moulding the bricks and mortar solution becomes really challenging in that aspect as well. Well, yeah, I think that's that's one of those things, you know, when a doctor might tell you, you know, your, your family member's probably going to need to have round-the-clock care, uh, people might have some misconceptions about aged care living and also some people might have misconceptions about the, uh, the work that you do. Have you ever had any people come to you and, and have some strange misconceptions about the work that you do? Yeah, look... When I was awarded the Churchill Fellowship in 2015, one of my colleagues approached me and said, oh, so, you know, you, you're going to see a lot of aged care homes. And it was kind of like, well, that's part of it, but, you know, the solution is so much larger than that. You know, it, it goes well beyond visiting aged care homes and the bricks and mortar solution. So 
you know, and, and I don't profess to be an expert when it comes around to what operational models and care models and the financing and the funding sit behind that. I have a, you know, a base level of understanding around that. So, yeah, you know, and, and I still think there's this, everyone sort of says, you know, good on you because, you know, I don't want to go into the space that, you know, they currently go and visit and, you know, I think people still see this very institutionalised approach which kind of started in, you know, back in 1880 where, you know, where when you got older you ended up in more of an asylum than you did in a space that cared for you that and looked after you. So, yeah, it's, it's certainly challenging and, and people love to, you know, really engage in a conversation about what, what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're doing it. So, yeah, there's a little bit of re-education needed. I think, you know, having the capacity of, I, I spoke to the a couple of the architectural students at UTAS a few years ago and, and it was great to see such a young, enthusiastic students, you know, already understanding the notion of empathy for design and our community and how you can contribute. So, yeah, pretty powerful space. Yeah, absolutely. You've mentioned that you had the Churchill Fellowship and you've done so much research in this area. How has this affected your design consideration in the way that you actually go through the design process? How do you think that's now a little bit different to a standard architectural project? You know, I think it's about identifying the built environment that that home is going to go into. So it's about trying to understand the culture and the built fabric that's familiar, the landscape that's understood. Uh, so, you know, effectively, we do a, a very thorough analysis of the built environment, the cultural environment, and, you know, that landscape environment as well. So that, that's one critical position that you move forward with, but it's also trying to understand the aspirations of the client and really unpacking that in an in-depth way so you understand what they're trying to achieve and what their aspirations are. Um, and I think that's probably not an unusual space for an architect to, to commence a you know, point of departure for the project within it. But, you know, for example, with, with Karonji, we, we developed a colour palette that was informed from colours off Mount Wellington Kunyani, which, you know, if you live in Hobart, you know what Mount Wellington looks like. You know, it's a, it's a beautiful piece of our landscape and, you know, from the top of the mountain to the River Derwent is a, an amazing experience. So, you know, you start to try to justify and develop a narrative around those components which plug in to the known and the, the cultural experiences that come with it. And I think the other one, as you sort of, one of the podcasts I was listening to, you know, that design around empathy and understanding cultural component and trying to unpack that significantly. So, you know, we refer to Karonji as, as a, a Glenorchy response to a global issue. So, and it is very much a Glenorchy thing, you know, what's the building typology look like around us and, and what's the cul-de-sac and the street look like and how do we integrate that into the built fabric without being cheesy and token. All right. Well, thank you so much, Stephen, for being part of the podcast. It's been so great to hear about the projects that you've been involved with. Can't wait to see some photos of the completed Kurumbeen uh, Lachlan Wing and also Karonji Venture Village when that's all uh, finished and, and out there. Uh, so thank you so much for all of your work. And yeah, we look forward to hearing from you in the future. Yeah, lovely. Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for listening. This has been a mini episode of Hearing Architecture featuring Stephen Geeson from Cycle Architecture based in Hobart, Tasmania. This episode was coordinated by Imagine Committee member Lily Fong. 
If you'd like to hear more interviews with architects from around Australia, please keep listening to Hearing Architecture on your favourite podcast app. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture wherever you listen to your podcasts. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Stacey Rodder, Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. To learn more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.